Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, and welcome to Season 2 of the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I firmly believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives, and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking with Miguel Taribio Mateus. Miguel is an experienced and highly sought-after nutritional therapist and a chair of the British Association of Applied Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine. With a degree in nutritional medicine, master's in clinical neuroscience, and pursuing a doctorate in nutritional neuroscience, I'm extremely excited to talk with him today about all things gut health and mental well-being. So, without further ado, Miguel... Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with you today. So Miguel, how does your story begin in the field of nutrition? Uh, well, it goes back to uh, uh, growing as part of a family where uh, my mom never really uh, gave me any... I think the first time I, I ate something like pizza or uh, burger or something, I must have been in my teens. So all through my uh, early life, I was fed... Um, homemade food that was cooked from scratch um, three times a day kind of thing that one of one of those mothers like that and uh, and quite varied as well so uh, when I first came to the UK and that's nearly 25 years ago I um, it was a bit of a cultural shock in terms of uh, the, the different um, focus on food I think it's changed a lot people talk about food and nutrition all the time whereas in my culture originally it's part of life people take like three hours to eat and they take a delight in taking a long lunch and you know loads of plates and colors and diversity um so i've always been attracted to that and uh and as you know um diversity is very important in terms of uh, when you're talking about gut health and um, diversity of bugs of bacteria or microbes in your gut is yes very well reported in 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 scientific literature and there's a correlation between, or a, a relationship between, that diversity in your in your uh, microbes that live inside you and what you feed yourself. So, uh, so yeah, it, it goes back a long time. It goes back to to just being part of that kind of um, nourishing family that gave me lovely Mediterranean food when I was a child. So it's always resonated with me that you can use food to help you stay happy and healthy and uh, and and uh and to seek comfort in without having to be a nutella on toast <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely and what motivated you to start learning about gut health and the microbiome was it something that you've experienced in the past uh it, it wasn't particularly anything to do with uh with me with my health i know some people have their own journeys and they go into uh you know exploring those because they suffered from something like ibs or something like that um i um I had done um, some some of the modules that I had learned during my first degree in nutrition 
had to do with the gut already so I was quite keen to explore that and uh, I worked in some of these health retreats when I was a student so even from the first year I was um, doing um, health retreats in Spain just uh, observing and, and helping and there was a lot of work done in the gut and you know working with uh, trying to uh, trying to pull more basically eating more vegetables so you kind of uh, you know excrete more toxins or whatever so that kind of uh, was an early exposure to that kind of world but it was probably uh, working with uh, Professor Tim Spector at King's College. Oh, um, yes. So um, Tim Spector is now running this um, trial called the uh, PREDICT study. It's a randomized controlled trial uh, trying to um, work out whether there's an association between the foods that you eat and the bacteria in your gut, but also your blood sugar levels, measuring that with a uh, device that you wear one of those wearable things that is like a nicotine patch with a mm -hmm. bluetooth sensor yeah that senses information to your mobile about your blood sugar levels all the time so before that came into place there was a, a process of setting up this project called map my gut that um, took two, probably over two years to develop into maturity and it was based at king's with a team running it and uh, i was involved with him trying to uh um, sets out the appetite from people who don't necessarily go to a clinician uh, yes. to, to kind of like direct to consumer stool tests or poo mm -hmm. tests to try and work out whether people needed to go through a clinician or they could interpret the results themselves, what kind of right. support they needed from a, from the microbiologist and all of this kind of, kind of stuff. It was a very interesting research project and I was involved in it for a couple of years working with, um, with him and that gave me a lot of exposure to this kind of thing and to hundreds and hundreds of different tests by different people. So that was my kind of uh, baptism of fire of the microbiome, really. Was that study in twins? Because I understand twins have the, even though they have the same genetics, mm -hmm. their gut microbiome can be vastly different. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so the, the, the reason why... Um, Tim became the person to go to for the microbiome is because he's a, a professor of um, um, genetics. So he pretty well knew that we're about 95% the same, you and I, mm -hmm. and you know, me and somebody in Japan, we're 95% the same. But me and somebody in Japan are likely to be just 30% the same when it comes to our gut bacteria. Wow, yes. Uh, probably because you and I live in the same city, we probably share about 40% because we eat the same foods so the same kind of like range of foods. Mm -hmm. uh, we live in the same country, so um, we breathe in pretty much the same air and drinking the same water. So those kind of environmental factors have got a, an impact on, um, on, uh, on that kind of stuff. So he started to realize that even twins have got that difference and started to document that. And he's written probably hundreds of papers now, I've been involved in hundreds of hundreds of papers now about that kind of subject so the predict studies it, the first phase is based on on the twins on his database so he's got about 14,000 um, um, people in that database and I think the next phase is going to be people who are not necessarily twins so yeah and we know the gut microbiome is essential to digestive function and um, what are the common causes of gut dysbiosis and gut hyperpermeability. So gut dysbiosis, just to for those who may not know what, what it means, 
it's basically an imbalanced kind of uh, uh, population of bacteria. So you've got these uh, uh, groups of bacteria living in your gut. We're talking just about bacteria. Really, we should be talking about all sorts of microorganisms or like bugs living in your gut, but we refer mostly to bacteria. So we've got these uh, families of bacteria living in the gut and uh, depending on what you're feeding them, some of them may be thinking, okay, oh great, that same salad from the shop around the corner that's got the, the things that I like, you know, a bit of tomato, a bit of, sa a bit of um, salad leaves, whatever. If you feed yourself that same salad every day, some of those families in your gut are going to thrive. Mm -hmm. Some of the families that don't like salad and tomatoes are going to start going down in numbers. Right. So if that continues for a certain amount of time and then you add in things like ultra processed foods, like rich in sugar and probably saturated fats combined, you know, things like, you know, junk food from, um, you know, fast food shops and things like that, or cakes and biscuits and all this kind of and stuff. The standard American, standard British Exactly. Diets. So if you add all of those foods that are not really ideal for consumption on a regular basis for your gut um, 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 flora, what happens is that some of those families that really like that quick access to energy and quick access to sugar are going to really thrive. And the gut is uh, like a uh, it's like a room with four walls and limited space. And if you have some families getting excited and growing in numbers, they are going to crowd out the families that don't really like that food and they can take over. So this is what happens in, in this biosis. You look at a, at the results of somebody's stool test and you see that some families have actually gone off the roof, they've gone off the scale, uh, or they are really high in numbers, and some other families have taken a step back, have basically been crowded out by those that have taken over the space, because as I said, it's a limited amount of space, and not all families can be really high in numbers. If they are, then you'll know, because you'll be probably suffering from bloating and so on as a result, because they're all living and breathing inside you. I know you mentioned it earlier that this gut diversity is extremely important. From what you've just said there about the bloating, is it possible to have too many species of bacteria within your gut or not? Uh, it's it's possible to have too many numbers. Uh, to, in, in terms so of colonies. Yeah, so it's more, the, the, it's more about the abundance of each of the um, colonies as opposed to the to the diversity. I haven't seen anybody with too much diversity, to be quite honest. Even in the days of Map My Gut, where there was uh, this kind of um, uh, formula to calculate the diversity that was like a, um, a, a flat line with um, splitting in four, so qu uh, quartiles. Yes. Most people were uh, in the middle and down, as opposed to in the middle and up. So most people had. 50 per, around 50 percent diversity mm -hmm. uh very few people were in that third and and very 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 few people were on the fourth quartile so okay. i only had when I, I spoke to about 200 different people in kind of um, um interviews with them about the test and i don't know that i had to say to somebody you have too much diversity <laughs> in any of those cases <laughs> Did that increased diversity lead to better health outcomes or did these um, patients or clinicians or people participating in the study, did they seem healthier? 
So it wasn't a study, it was more of, a, of a, a, an observation and there okay. wasn't an ability to associate the health outcomes really. It was just, an, again, just me making notes or somebody else making notes. Um, that is, however, what I'm doing at the uh, London Agri-Food Innovation Clinic, LAFIC, which is a, a, a research program funded by the uh, European Union um, how is it called? the European um, Development and Regeneration Fund and uh, is hosted at London South Bank University and uh, we're running to start with uh, two potentially three randomized control trials uh, to try and find relationships between your gut bacteria and mental health outcomes more yes. on the cognitive side so basically on things like uh, uh, mood uh, recall, working memory, that kind of stuff, as opposed to diagnosed conditions like depression and so on. So there could be maybe some idea of anxiety or, you know, related to mood, but without getting into the diagnosed conditions like the full-on um, depression and so on. So that at, what, at that point, we will be looking at what's going on in the gut yes. and asking people how they feel so there are certain tests that are psychology tests that mm -hmm. are validated, that are based on a questionnaire, like this thing called the Cyclops um, questionnaire. That is and a what does that entail? It's a validated tool, and basically it's got various different questions about your mental health, and uh, you rate yourself based on a scale um, on the day. So it could be your mood and it could be as good as it can get or as bad as it can get. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if you have an idea of how you're feeling today and then we run a test and we measure your microbiome or your gut bacteria or whatever you want to call it, and we have that, that we store that, uh, you know, in a cupboard. Yes. And then uh, you go away and you drink kefir or, you know, drink kombucha or eat kimchi or sauerkraut or more chickpeas or whatever mm -hmm. and you document that aided by a scientist uh, so we get all of that information and then we test your gut flora again three months later two months later we're kind of like working out how we're going to do it at the moment we're kind of like setting up the methodology so and and ask you again so how do you feel today and it would be the same question so we can compare so okay so three months ago in terms of mood, you felt pretty low. Yes. And uh, three months later, you've been drinking kefir, let's say, and uh, we have a look at your gut bacteria. Something has changed and your mood has improved. So this is the kind of thing that we're trying to work out there. Because recently there's been a huge or a big push on mental health awareness. And with that, the idea that you can eat... Um, to affect depressive symptoms. Mm -hmm. Now, have you seen any dietary changes which have the biggest benefit to the microbiome as it pertains to depressive symptoms or neurological conditions? So there's the, the science on the microbiome and the relationship with the, with the brain is, uh, it's, it's fairly emerging science, so it's, it, it, particularly when it comes to humans. So when you talk about mice, there's hundreds of papers Right. And uh, so we know in theory how things are happening because they've been tested in a, uh, in a test tube. So we know that, you know, molecule A goes into receptor B 
and we know the process, kind mm-hmm. of how the you know the the mechanism of action. Why is this happening? Yes. Then we go into the next step and we test it in a mouse, and you know, and we work out that the mouse gets less lost in a ma- in a maze or you know or remembers more where to go and get like the food or something like that yes. but obviously we're a little bit more complicated than a mouse i like <laughs> to think yeah so the clinical data is is slowly coming into you know it, it's emerging slowly it's and and at the moment there isn't one definitive way that we know is best to eat for mental health in terms of uh, how you feed them through the microbiome. So mm-hmm. if you eat this food, then your microbiome will change and your depression will go away. We have these theories. What tends to have a, a good cognitive uh, impact is something along the lines of a Mediterranean um, diet pattern. And I say a pattern because it's not a diet. It's not the Mediterranean diet book by... Blah, blah doctor blah 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 <laughs> which is just one way of eating yes it's it's a mediterranean pattern that i like to think a bit like what my mom fed me when i was a child you know before social media and before instagram before you know nutrition books and nutrition celebrities yes it was what traditionally what my mom who is 82 now knew from her childhood were healthy foods for a family Mm -hmm. so there was always plenty of vegetables some fruit but not like eating fruit all day you know you ate a couple of pieces of fruit uh, some dairy so there was cheese uh, you know um, probably whole grains but not masses of them as well because some Mediterranean diet pyramids seem to just have loads of bread at the bottom and whole grains and in my experience that's not the case in in all Mediterranean countries and just looking at Spain for example just as a country itself not the whole of Spain it's the same depending on the region because some regions are very cold and some regions are very hot if you're in Andalusia at the bottom you may want to eat more salads because it's 35 degrees in like November but if you're in the mountains where it's you know, minus five in mm-hmm. uh, in October, then you probably want to eat something a bit more substantial. So there's lots of differences. Yes. So anyway, I think the variety is key mm-hmm. in the Mediterranean diet pattern. Lots of colors, lots of sources of fiber from different different things. You know, like onions and um, salads and uh, um, some potatoes and sweet potatoes. All all sorts of different things. And I suppose those colors, they relate to certain polyphenols or plant chemicals exactly. within the food. I spoke to Deanna Minnick recently. All right, okay, um, yes. And she has this artistic kind of spiritual element to mm-hmm. certain foods and mm-hmm. how colors relate to our bodies and our, our mental state as well. I love Deanna, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. So uh, she's a lovely person as well. Absolutely. So the the uh, uh, there is that. So. Uh, 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 from a less kind of a spiritual kind of a point of view, you have in the in the tangible world you have two things that feed the the, the gut bacteria. So you've got the fiber that you can see with the naked eye. Mm-hmm. So if you get an onion or a leek, you've got fiber in there. If you get lentils, you see the fiber. You see the yes. shell of the lentil. The kind of a you know the the, and then you see the thing that comes out of the shell. You get quinoa, you see the, you know, when it bubbles, when you boil it, you know, you see the rice is kind of all fiber. So you see all of these kind of like things with the naked eye. And then you have the polyphenols or the, you know, in the old world of talking about science, the antioxidants. Yes. They are um, 
very much bound to the colors so every color will give you a different that pigment in the color carries different nutrients micronutrients that are you know polyphenols flavonols flavonols mm -hmm. uh, flavonoids you know whatever name you want to give them different yes. names for different different foods and they all have a function that yes it is antioxidant but that's the old school of looking at them it's also feeding for the live bacteria in your gut so your bacteria feed off the fiber from the lake or the onion or the lentils but they also feed or try to feed from the uh, polyphenols in green tea for example or in you know the polyphenols in raspberries or in strawberries or dark chocolate which or is probably chocolate. one of my favorites exactly so <laughs> but when i say they try because these substances are not really giving them any substance to feed on it's not like something they can really stick their teeth in and, and bite a, a chunk out of so they try and try and try and break them but they cannot really break them because mm -hmm. in fact polyphenols are quite complex they're almost like a toxin that the body needs to deal with they are processed by the same mechanisms in the body as toxins so they are xenobiotics in a way they are these kind of uh, strange things that have come into the body it's only that they are strange but nice as opposed to strange but nasty yes okay. so you know but so your gut bacteria are trying to work them out so you eat your dark chocolate and you you know your bacteria your bifidobacteria in your gut or your lactobacilli in your gut are kind of thinking oh what is this that's nice i'm going to you know it's got a bit of sugar because it's dark chocolate with like you know you know 85 percent it's still got 15 percent sugar so mm -hmm. they eat the sugar they think oh this is nice or oh, it's got something else attached to it as well it's this funny flavonol thing what is it they try to play with it they try to break it down they cannot really break it down but in the process of trying to break it down they're going to produce their own substances short chain fatty acids and yes. amongst them and and those natural substances that are being produced in the gut are very nourishing for the gut itself so if a, a bacterium is producing butyrate for example which is a yeah. a short chain fatty acid butyrate is a is a fatty uh, molecule that nourishes the the uh, uh, the cells in the gut lining so those cells actually use that for energy and mm -hmm. for repair and regeneration but part of it most of it is absorbed in the gut part of it actually goes into systemic circulation and it goes into your brain and it goes into your heart so it's yeah it's uh it's those so going back to that question the fiber yes the fiber is very important but the colors of the fiber because if the fiber you're eating is always the same color if you're always eating a fiber rich food like broccoli for example but that's the only fiber rich food you eat every day it's not the same as having purple broccoli that's giving you something different to their green broccoli potentially very yes. different variations mm -hmm. your gut bacteria like variation they like a bit of diversity. They're like a, a city like London with lots of physiognomies and different types of people, some of which will get very excited by a new restaurant opening with Chinese food around the corner. Some of them will hate Chinese food and they will want Moroccan food, so they'll get excited by a Moroccan restaurant. Are fermented foods efficacious in promoting gut and mental health? I know you touched on them previously, but the science in this area seems to be quite limited. Yeah, it is patchy, and this is why we're trying to work out at La Fake, at this uh, London Agri-Food Innovation Clinic. So um, so we, we, we're going to be working with a couple of fermented foods, and one is going to be a kefir-based um, food. So um, 
Uh, at the moment, it's you can find some uh, papers saying that the effects are limited, whereas some other papers actually just um, seem to think that they do have a, a really good beneficial effect. And just to clarify for the people at home, when we talk about fermented foods, these are things like your sauerkraut, yeah. kimchi, kombucha, kefir, mboshi, if you go really niche. Yeah, all <laughs> of those things, yeah, or even uh, tamari sauce. But you, when you look at uh, many of the things that people don't think about as being fermented, if you have a traditional salami, for example, or even jamon, you know, mm -hmm. your, your ham, your, your parma ham, it's a piece of meat hung in the fresh air uh, or even your 28-day Angus steak. Right, it's yes. Basically, to, it's been matured, basically means it's actually been left in the cold air, mm -hmm. in a cold room for 28 days. What do you expect is going to happen? It's going to be fermented. Right. So all of those, um, you know, there's a, a bit of fine-tuning to do with regards to fermented foods. It's obviously going to be more difficult to start testing, you know, when you have a combination of those foods what happens when you have kefir and you have your matured steak you know oh, at the yeah. same time cheeses your unpasteurized exactly cheeses. That, that's another mm. one so cheese unpasteurized cheese each of them is going to give you a different type of uh, bacterium um when i um uh, when you asked me about why i came into nutrition i forgot to say that i before i actually trained in nutrition i was working in scientific publishing for a long time my um, background in, in, in publishing goes back to the, um, to the late 90s. And, uh, and one of the jobs that I did, I was uh, working for a medical publisher. And um, they did a lot of uh, uh, publishing on food science. So I had to, I was a trainer, I was training researchers on how to use medical and scientific databases. And one of my clients was uh, the Food Science Institute in Spain. So they produce a lot of science on cheese because Spain is huge on cheese. There's yes. like, you know, hundreds of varieties of cheese. And they were, you know, I went to loads of events where like these scientists were getting very excited talking about, you know, two types of bacteria present in a, you know, in a cheese from a specific region of Spain. Yeah. Obviously, when mm -hmm. you pasteurize cheese, you kill some of the bacteria, which is probably a good thing for mm -hmm. certain people not to be overloaded with bacteria. But at the same time, it may be a bad thing if you want to benefit from those bacteria because they may have nice anti-inflammatory effects or they may have, you know, it's not all about the bacteria colonizing the gut. It's about what they do in transit through you. And some of them may only stay there for a two or three days and then leave. But while they are inside you, they're actually doing very nice things. Um, and I realize you took many of the things that we've spoken about already, you touched upon them in your paper mm -hmm. um, that you published in April 2018 in the journal Microorganisms called Harnessing the Power of Microbiome Assessment Tools as Part of Neuroprotective Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine Interventions. That's a big name. It's a bit of a mouthful, <laughs> yes. But I will, uh, I will link to it in the show notes for, for listeners if they would like to explore that further. Thank you. One question that I get asked quite a lot mm -hmm. is in Europe, when you're prescribed antibiotics, which are, are known to have beneficial effects from fighting certain infections, but they also have effects, quite powerful effects on the gut microbiome in terms of reducing diversity and the colonies within the gut. In Europe, they're given probiotics alongside antibiotics. And in the UK, that doesn't seem to be 
as widely implemented. What are your comments on that? Is it a good thing to take probiotics with antibiotics? I would, I would not be averse to taking probiotics after taking antibiotics. I'm unsure as to taking them at the same time because you could argue that while you're taking the antibiotics, you could also be killing the probiotics. Right. But uh, that is from the point of view of colonization. So if you're taking, if you're looking at taking the probiotics because you're simply looking at how at replacing. So you're thinking, okay, I'm going to take this super strain, super dose probiotic uh, to replace some of the choline that I'm going to be doing with with the antibiotics. From that point of view, um, it may not be that efficacious because you may be killing the probiotics as well. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a you know a bit of a red herring. But what the uh, probiotics may be doing is even broken down pieces of uh, bacteria are going to be gently stimulating your immune system, which is another way that has been shown that it happens. So even if you take a probiotic capsule and the probiotic happens to be dead, so mm -hmm. the bacteria doesn't hydrate properly, rehydrate properly, and it's actually a dead piece of bacteria, bacteria, the skeleton of the bacteria, the cytoskeleton, actually contains certain proteins that your immune system in the gut is going to pick up is going to identify and in doing that is going to be gently stimulated mm -hmm. so i hate this word boosting of the immune system because yes. it's a bit, you know it's been hyped up and you know and then busted and you know you know it's another myth and whatever <laughs> and i cannot get into the busting myths kind of uh, silliness but it's the uh, it's the ability of your body to pick up a signal from this proteins in the in the um in the skeleton of the, the even the dead bacteria and to do something with it and the response is going to be simple things like um secretory iga which is an immunoglobulin is the first line of defense of the immune system in the gut and it's just simply a protein in there that uh, uh, uh picks up potential threats that are coming through the mouth mm -hmm. or in contact with any mucosal tissue anywhere from the mouth to the anus and you've got it in your eyes as well and anywhere that's moist in the body basically right and uh and if that picks up a signal that potentially something is a threat and potentially a, a skeleton of a funny bacteria that doesn't quite live in the gut or doesn't quite fit into the the catalog of things that your secretory iga has got in a little pad saying is this safe or not if it doesn't quite fit in there because it's kind of broken or something it's going to just wake it up so okay. what it does is going to wake up your immune system. It's almost like your immune system having a strong cappuccino, you know, just uh, getting a, a nice bit of energy and saying, right, well, I need to be a bit more alert. Okay. And that probably is a good thing, particularly because you had an infection to start with. So you had an infection that your doctor has given you antibiotics for. Mm -hmm. So if you alert your immune system to be a bit more prepared for any potential further infections or to allow you to get rid of that infection and perhaps another associated infections great so right. that's my view i'm not averse i'm not really sure that you need them while you are taking the antibiotics yes. i would probably focus on taking them after taking the antibiotics to just repair and so on okay excellent well that's certainly a takeaway for myself if i'm ever ill and i'm taking antibiotics mm -hmm. When you're choosing a probiotic, a lot of people take them for general health benefits. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. And also, 
should we take ones with as many strains as possible? And does the, the, the concentration count, you know, the colony forming units can be billions? I think taking probiotics is a, is become uh, a bit trivialized basically, just because um, you cannot just say take antibiotics or take vitamins, mm -hmm. it would be the same thing. If I say to you, oh, you tell me, oh, I feel a bit, you know, a bit um, flat, I need a bit more energy. And I say, oh, take some vitamins. Well, which one? Mm -hmm. So it would be the same question to be, you know, that we need to apply to probiotics. So what would you like to achieve? And according to that, match with what the literature is saying. Yes. Yes. So if you take a probiotic that is just a general probiotic with 10 strains, it's probably going to be a comparison again like a rough comparison with an antibiotic that is a wide spectrum antibiotic that is known to kill a hundred different things as opposed to an antibiotic that is very precisely designed to just kill one type of infection mm -hmm. so some probiotics because they have you know 10 different 10 different bacteria are going to be able to do the things that those 10 different bacteria do well, and because they are different, they may do well at lowering cholesterol, um, um, lowering inflammation in the gut, mm -hmm. potentially making you feel less depressed or happier, you know, all of those things, like fighting fungal infections in the gut, you know, all of those things that they could do. But if you have something that is very targeted as your health goal, so if your cholesterol is high, then take a probiotic that has been shown to lower cholesterol in a clinical right. trial potentially. Yes. And that way you know that there's some clinical evidence that what you're doing is right. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you want to really stimulate that uh, immunity in the gut and protect that, well, take something that, you know, like a esbulardi, like a saccharomyces esbulardi that actually stimulates that secretory IgA and there's loads of papers on that yes. so if you want Highly to be beneficial. more targeted as to how to achieve your goal taking something that is off the shelf with 10 strains and high dose is going to be okay uh, probably it's going to be a good thing rather than a bad thing but it's going to be a bit random as well because you don't really know what those 10 things are doing okay fantastic thank you very much for explaining that um as you are now on the front lines of research in this area, what do you predict to be the most exciting discoveries or findings that will come out soon? Well, I'm hoping in the next five years we'll have a better understanding of the relationship between the gut and the brain because um, a lot of it is based on, again, on, on, on the theories from... I mean, having um, uh, written uh, 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 that paper that you mentioned, and there's uh, another one that um, that's going to be coming out soon on the same kind of vein, um, I've reviewed a lot of literature in that area, and some of the uh, neuroanatomy that, that is referred to in current papers goes back to papers from the 50s that we've known about, about the relationship between the gut and the brain via the vagus nerve. Yes. 